Good morning, Eastgate Bible Church. Um, today we are going to continue our series in 1 Samuel. This is our uh, second sermon in the series. So if you missed last week, the introduction, the sermon is available on our website at eastgatebiblechurch.com. Also on our YouTube and Vimeo channels as well. And Facebook, I believe the video is up there for those who would like to view it. So we're going to come before the Lord in prayer uh, that we would draw near to him and we would hear his voice through his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the almighty creator of heaven and earth. You are the one who created and sustains everything. You are the one from whom all good gifts come. You are worthy of all of our honor and praise and even more than we could ever give to you. We thank you that you have made yourself known to us through your scriptures, through the person of Jesus Christ. And we pray that we might draw near to you as we hear your voice through your word this morning to shape and change us to be faithful, image-bearing servants. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, on Friday after school, our daughter Miller came home all excited. She had something she wanted to show me. She had what she called a magic cactus seed. It was beautifully decorated, it had glitter all over it, and she was so excited to see this thing grow. Now just imagine for a moment, if Miller had left that seed sitting on the kitchen bench, going back day and day again, looking at it and saying, ah, oh, it's just not growing, Dad. Now that seed in and of itself has everything it needs for a plant to grow and to flourish. But for that to happen, it needs to be in the right environment. It needs to be placed in connection with a source of life and growth. And so thankfully, that seed is now planted in a pot in our backyard. And Miller does check on it on a daily basis to see how it's going. But having the seed, it's not enough. It's got all of the potential there within that seed for life and growth. But without a living connection to the source of life and growth, it will achieve nothing. Today we are going to look at a number of people in 1 Samuel chapter 2. People who have everything available to them to lead them to a living, vibrant connection with God. But with two very different outcomes. Now if you weren't here last week for our introductory sermon... The setting to which we find ourselves in, in 1st and 2nd Samuel, now God has chosen a people and brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, to be his own possession. It didn't take long until, as God dwelt amongst them, the people began to complain. One of the consequences was they would be wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. Eventually, under Joshua, they enter into the promised land of Canaan. And then for roughly around 300 years, you have the period of the judges ruling over them. And that's kind of where it leads us up to, to the beginning of 1 Samuel. And we've got a very vivid description of what things were like at the end of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, where it describes the situation in these terms. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So as we came to 1 Samuel, 
there was almost an expectation that God would raise up a significant figure to draw a people back to himself. And even though we were introduced to a high priest named Eli and his sons serving as priests, Hophni and Phinehas, it wasn't someone of significance who was of center stage. In fact, the most prominent figure that we looked at last week was a lady named Hannah, who was married to Elkanah, not again someone of any particular significance, but she was a woman who knew God. Despite her relative insignificance, despite the fact that she probably would have been looked down upon because she was barren and didn't have any children, and on their annual pilgrimage to Shiloh to bring their offering before the Lord, she was there pouring out her heart before God, asking that she might have a son. And in her interactions with Eli the high priest, we don't know if he knows exactly what it is that she had been requesting, Eli speaks to her and says, you will have that very thing that you were asking for God. And so they went home. Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah, and she gave birth to a son named Samuel. And then Hannah, in response, she has this wonderful prayer in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, where she expresses these things which show something of her character and her knowledge of the God whom she loved, describing as the one there was none holy like him in verse 2, that there is no other God in verse 2, that he is the God who knows everything and who weighs the actions of all in verse 3, the one who humbles the proud and exalts the humble in verses 4 through to 8, the God who made and sustains all of the world, verse 8, the God who looks after those who are faithful, verse 8, and the God who alone is judge in verse 10. She was an incredible example of godliness. She knew God. She was the shining light of 1 Samuel chapter 1, even far beyond any of the men, even the high priest or his sons who were serving as priests. She was a woman who knew her God, and she expressed it in her prayer. In the first chapter, we were introduced to Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and we're told that they were serving as priests at, at Shiloh. And today we see something of what they were like as priests in their service at Shiloh. And we see them as a stark contrast to Hannah. And also an expression of what Hannah prayed, of God who raises up the lowly, but who brings down those who are proud. So as we look at our passage today, which is 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12 through to 37, we're going to ask some Shakespearean-like questions. To know or not to know, verses 12 to 21. To act or not to act, verses 22 to 26. To live or not to live, verses 27 to 37. And we're going to ponder two questions with regards to knowing and growing in the Lord. But firstly, to know or not to know. We know the situation in which 1 Samuel was written. Everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. People were not honoring God as God. Everyone was functioning as a law and an authority unto themselves. And sadly, the priests were no different. The way they are described in our opening verse, verse 12, 
Now the sons of Eli, that's Hophni and Phinehas, were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Already we see a stark contrast between Hophni and Phinehas and Hannah. Hannah was someone who deeply knew the Lord and who herself in her defense to Eli in chapter 1 verse 16 says, I am not a worthless woman. Yet here are the priests serving in the tabernacle of God at Shiloh, described as men as worthless who did not know the Lord. Now they knew about God. They wouldn't be in their position as a priest without education and training in the laws and ways of God. But they didn't have an intimate relationship with God. That's the way in which this term know has been used throughout the Bible, but also in 1 Samuel. It's the same word that we see used in verse 19 of chapter 1. It says, Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and they bore a son, Samuel. In verse 19, Elkanah didn't come just to an understanding that, oh, this woman's name is Hannah. He entered into an intimate union with his wife. And these priests had all the knowledge of the scriptures that would lead them and point them to God, but they did not have a relationship with the God to whom the scriptures pointed them to. I mean, what hope is there for the people if the priests, the religious leaders, are characterized in these terms? Effectively, they are embodying what Paul described of sinful mankind in Romans chapter 1, verses 20 to 22, where he says they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give him thanks. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. What Paul describes of sinful humanity fits Hophni and Phinehas to a T. They knew there was a God. They knew all about him. But they refused to honor him as God. They didn't give him thanks. They thought they were wise, but they acted foolishly. And because they refused to recognize God as God, they had their own authority. They acted for their own benefit, for their own glory. And they had their own customs. We can make no mistake when we read verse 13, when it speaks about a custom of the priests. We're not talking about a custom given by God through his law to the priests. But it describes customs that the priests themselves have set up that are in opposition to the customs which God had given to the priests. We don't know whether Hophnir and Phinehas were the pioneers of these particular moves in which they were doing. And God's laws did allow for the priests to benefit in their service through some of the offerings offered by fire that they, the priests would benefit from food that would come from that. But there were also boundaries and stipulations placed around those things. The food which they would take from the meat offerings would need to be cooked. They couldn't just choose any portion of the meat, but there were particular portions assigned to them. And the fat, all of the fat, was to be burnt up as an offering completely and wholly to God and to God alone. But in practice, Hophni and Phinehas took whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, 
even taking that by force and preventing honest, sincere worshippers from being able to worship rightly before the Lord. One example of that in verse 13 is while the meat was boiling, as in before it was cooked, they would put in a three-pronged fork and take a part of the meat and presumably because of the way in which Eli is rebuked in verse 29, taking the choice portions for themselves. But it gets even worse than that. It hits its sort of low point with regards to the offerings in verses 15 and 16, where we read, Moreover, before the fat was burnt, remember, according to the law, all of the fat was to be burnt and offered up to God. The priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish. He would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. This is what was happening in the tabernacle. You see the sequence of events. Firstly, the priest's servant requests something sinful, asking for something at a time when it's not lawful for them to take it. Then you have an honest, sincere worshipper who wants to do the right thing before God and says, hang on, how about we do the right thing? Then you can take whatever you like. And then the priest servant says, no, you cannot worship God rightly. You must give it. You must give it now. You've got no say. We are going to take it from you. Rather than the priest aiding people in the worship of God, they were hindering people in the worship of God. And it's fair that in verse 17, it says, And their sin was great in the sight of the Lord. And incidentally, this is the first reference to sin in the book of 1 Samuel. Their sin was great in the sight of the Lord because they treated the offerings with contempt. That is, they treated the means of grace which God had provided for an unholy people to dwell in the presence of a holy God, and they had treated those with contempt. So you've got the priests whose sin was great, but then by way of contrast, you've got references to Samuel who grew or literally became great in the sight of the Lord in verses 21 and 26. Now as Hannah and Elkanah continued to, to go to Shiloh year after year, she would bring um, a new ephod for, uh, for Samuel. But one time as she's there, Eli says to Hannah and prays for her that she might have more children and she ends up having another three sons and two girls. But the first section closes with that positive note focusing on Samuel, saying the boy Samuel grew, or as we've seen, literally meaning became great in the presence of the Lord. The priesthood were declining or becoming great in sin, and the boy Samuel was becoming great in the presence of God. So what's Eli doing? Like, so far, he seemed a pretty good, godly kind of guy, but what's he doing about his sons? It's the question of to act or not to act. Now, we need to recognize Eli's an old man. At the time when Samuel came to him 
Eli was roughly around the age of 90. And when we hear about his death in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 15, it says he died at the age of 98 and that his eyesight was basically shot. So you could excuse him to an extent for his mistake of Hannah back in the previous chapter when he sees her praying, the lips are moving, but nothing sounds are coming out and presuming that she's drunk. Maybe you could put that down to his poor eyesight. But to what extent is he responsible for the actions of his sons? I mean, he would be the one who appointed them to that role of priest. Sure, his eyesight's no good. He probably can't see some of the things that are going on. But as we read verse 22, it's pretty clear that Eli is not only not ignorant of what's going on, he is also not void of responsibility. Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Eli was constantly hearing everything that his sons were doing to all of Israel. There was nothing, even though he may not have seen it, there was nothing that escaped his attention. And as bad as it was before with their contempt shown to the offerings, now we have an extra detail. Oh, and by the way, they're also sleeping with the women serving within the tabernacle. So what does Eli do with his sons? Well, he speaks to them, verse 23. He asks them, why are you doing this? He even describes their actions as evil. And even goes on to talk about how they haven't just sinned against people, but they have sinned against God himself and shown him the great magnitude of that. But what did he do? Well, in verse 24, Eli says to his sons, it is no good report that I hear about you. Really? That's understatement of the year. Here they are treating God's means of grace, the offerings with contempt, sleeping with the women, serving at the tabernacle, and you go, oh man, that's not real good. It reminds me of an ad that we used to see down in Victoria regarding smoking, and the tagline at the end was, smoking, it's not good, eh? It'd be like Eli saying, Treating God with contempt and his means of grace with contempt and sleeping with the women. Oh, that's not good, eh? Do something, Eli. This is for the sake and the honor and glory of God. If I was sleeping around with people at Eastgate Bible Church, helping myself to the bank accounts, stopping people from participating in communion or refusing to baptize them, I would expect Ray and Samuel not to come over to me and say, Steve, you're underperforming. Do something for the glory and honor of God. Eli should have removed his sons from serving in that capacity. But the best he did was to say, that's not real good what you're doing, is it? God even says in the way in which he rebukes Eli through this unnamed prophet in verse 29, you have honored your own sons above me. Now, we're probably not too surprised that Eli's sons don't respond. 
I mean, after all, if they're treating the very word that has come from God with contempt, why are they going to start listening to their dad all of a sudden? But once more, we see in the middle of a description of the decline of the priesthood, we see that little glimpse of hope in a description of this boy Samuel. Verse 26, Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favour with the Lord and also with man. He became, continued to become great in the sight of God. And that description of verse 26 sounds very similar to another description of another child in Luke chapter 2, verses 52, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's going to happen to Eli and his sons? Surely God's not just going to stand back and say, oh, that's no good report I hear about you guys. It's a question of to live or not to live. Now in just two chapters, we've seen a lot of what Hannah prayed about come to pass, especially with regards to God exalting the lowly and bringing down those who are proud. The most significant figures so far are not people who have come from positions of significance. And now in yet another example, God raises up what is described as a man of God or a prophet who is not even named, who comes to be the message to bring from God to Eli to rebuke him and his sons for their sin. Now this isn't a once-off situation where there is someone who doesn't even get referred to by name. It's actually quite common for God to raise up people and use them for great and mighty purposes, yet the scriptures don't even attribute a name or who it was who carried out that function. Because after all, it is God at work. The people are nothing more than the, the instruments, the channel through whom the power of God is expressed. And the same could be said for you and I. It is not just those big names in the kingdom of God whom God can and will use mightily for his good purposes. And there are three big parts to this prophetic rebuke that comes from this unnamed prophet. Firstly, he reminds them about the special gracious privileges that they have. Then he, then he speaks about what they've done with those special privileges. And then thirdly, what God will do in light of that. So the first thing he does is he reminds them, remember how as a descendant from Aaron, you from all of the tribes of Israel had specific blessings and gracious provisions that none others have? That you'd be able to go up to the altar to make sacrifices, to burn incense, that is, from the tribe from the, of Aaron, there would be able to be the, the priestly line who would enter into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, in which nobody else ever could do that, to benefit from the food of the sacrifices offered by fire, to wear the ephod as a sign of their holiness and their priestly role before God. Remember these great privileges that you alone have. These are things to be esteemed. But what have you done with them? You have treated them with contempt. Or literally, you have kicked them. You have treated them like, like a sick, dirty dog. You have kicked them to the side. This isn't just a ritual we're talking about here that they've treated with contempt. This is God's graciously provided means of grace 
so that an unholy people could dwell in the presence of a holy God. What hope is there when you reject God's means of grace and redemption and reconciliation? Well, what will happen if you reject the means of grace, that is, God giving you what you don't deserve, then the obvious response is you get what you do deserve. If you reject or, or mistreat the substitutionary death of an animal for your sin, then you will bear the death upon yourself for your sin. Now, sure, God did promise Aaron and his, and his family line that they would be in the priesthood forever. That doesn't mean that God will just put up with his representatives doing whatever they wanted. To use the word of Paul to the Galatians, God will not be mocked. And one of the consequences of this, in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, we see both Hophni and Phinehas die the same day in battle. And Eli also in chapter 4. But then when you come to 1 Samuel chapter 22, through the work of Saul, all of Eli's household, except one, Abiathar, are slaughtered. And even Abiathar, even though he remains, he is removed from the priesthood as one of the first things which Solomon does, recorded in 1 Kings 2.27. But so far, every section we've looked at, there's been the description of the downfall of the priesthood, followed by a little glimmer of hope of what God is doing. And this section is no, no exception to that rule. Look at verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Now, as it is often the case with prophecy, there are often multi-stages of fulfillment. I mean, some think this is speaking of Samuel. Um, Samuel does, to some extent, function as a priest, even though he's never called a priest. And he certainly does do according to what is in the heart and mind of God. But more specifically, it's speaking of Zadok who is the priest who is placed in line after Abiathar is removed, that final descendant from Eli. And it's described that way in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 35 to 4, verse 1. But even beyond that, it goes further to speaking of Jesus, who fulfills that role of prophet, priest, and king, the one for whom God will build a house, a church, the people of God. And as we look through 1 Samuel chapter 2, even when God's household looks like a mess, we see God continuing to be at work amongst his people. And as we conclude, I want us to ponder two things around the area of knowing and growing in the Lord. The first thing I want us to think about is our response to the means of grace that God has provided. And the second of those is knowing and growing in the Lord. But firstly, what is our response to the gracious provision that God has given us? Now, we don't live in the era of Samuel and Eli, where they offered continually sacrifices of animals to, to deal with the sin, to bring people into the presence of a holy God. But we do have some things in common. 
we, what we do have in common is that we are prone to do what is right in our own eyes. We, we don't honor God as God and therefore we need to be reconciled to God. But what God has provided for us at our point in time isn't an ongoing ritual of sacrificing animals each time we do something wrong, but he has provided the final and perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ, who died once for all to bring us to God. Jesus said he came to lay down his life as a ransom to bring people to God. He bore our punishment on our behalf, the punishment that we deserved. And the good news is, all of us, who all people ever born, need to be reconciled to God because we just do what is right in our own eyes. We don't honour God as God. Every single one who recognises that, who turns from their rebellion against God to trusting in Jesus Christ, their sins have been dealt with once and for all. They go from being an enemy of God to a child of God to living under his, his perfect and good and loving rule. And because Jesus' sacrifice was perfect and complete, we're not talking about something which is good news to the sort of the upper ranks of society. If you are a sinner, where you are minor sinner in the eyes of the world, or the biggest and most wicked, the gospel is good news for all sinners. That all, no matter where you're at, no matter how far you might be gone in your mind or in the eyes of the world, as you come to God, you confess your sin, ask Jesus to forgive, and you turn to him and you trust and live with him, all sin is forgiven. All are equally called a child of God. But equally, the bad news is, as was the case for Eli's sons, if you reject the means of grace that God has provided, and in our case that is the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, then you are subject to receiving upon yourself the punishment for your sin. Instead of taking hope in the reconciliation that's available in the, the substitute of Jesus, if you reject the substitute, you bear it yourself. You don't have to. I don't want you to. But if you won't receive the gift of God that you don't deserve, then you will receive from God what you do deserve for your treating him and his offering of Jesus Christ with contempt. So turn to him. He's good. He desires to forgive and to restore He's good. Yes, it will be, mean things change. But living in obedience to him is good. It is for our best. It is full of blessing and joy. He can be trusted. So that's our first thing. How do we respond to the means of grace that God has provided? And the second is knowing and growing in the Lord. 1 Samuel 2 does not speak about people who do know God as opposed to those who are ignorant about God. Instead, what it does do is compares two groups of people who know the same things about God with two very different responses. And if anything, 
the priests would probably be the ones who are most educated or who knew the most about God. But they are the ones who are described as worthless men who did not know God. Imagine being wise to everything that is designed to point you to salvation and being reconciled to God and just missing it, rejecting it. And sadly, all around the world that happens week after week. There are people who are church attenders, who are growing in their understanding about God and the Bible, but are never coming and turning to Jesus Christ, whom the Bible is pointing them to. Now, these priests were, to use New Testament terms, they were still in the flesh. They were not godly men. They did not know God. And according to Paul in Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, do not confuse knowledge about God with knowing God. Being good at understanding what the Bible teaches, having good theology is not a replacement for an intimate union and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like Miller having that seed. It's got all of the potential there for a plant to grow and for it to flourish. But if it is not placed in the context with a living union to the source of life and growth, it will do nothing. Growth only comes from connection with the life source. Or as Jesus put it, abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Or if Samuel had spoken this way in verse 21, And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. He grew with God. All genuine spiritual growth comes from our union, being with God in His presence, from being with the Lord. Spend time with Him. We don't read the Bible. We don't pray just to tick off a list or because it's our Christian duty. We read the Bible. We spend time in prayer to be with our Lord. As David wrote in Psalm 16, in verse 11, he says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pursue him. Seek him. Spend time with him. Spend time in his presence. As you're reading the Bible, as you're praying, remember you are communing with the perfect and holy God. Know Him. Don't settle for knowing about Him. Know Him and grow in Him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You that in Christ we have both the author and perfecter of our faith. We do not only seek Jesus for salvation, He's the one in whom we live and move and have our being. 
without a living and active connection to Christ, we can do nothing. Lord, restore in your people a desire to spend time with you. Not spend time just reading a Bible or praying, but, but seeking you through those things which you have given to us as a means of grace to know you. Lord, we pray that none of us would reject what you have provided in Jesus Christ to deal with the problem of our sin or to show contempt for Christ and his sacrifice. Lord, you are good. We thank you that we can have intimate fellowship with you. But we pray that you'll be working in your people, that they would know you and grow, become more and more like your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.